Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Media Buddhi A to Z. I am Archish Chaudhary and today we are discussing words that start with G. One of them is quite misunderstood and the other is poorly understood. There's no point being so mysterious about it, Archis. Let's just get straight into it. Uh, the words we're discussing are gender. The misunderstood one. And gaslighting. That's the poorly understood one. <laughs> and grassroots and gatekeeping. Oh, and by the way, I'm Divya Chandra. And I'm HR Venkatesh, and we all work for Boom Live, BoomLive.in, the fact-checking organization. We also do media literacy under Media Buddhi. Let's just start with G for gender. Now, what is gender and why is it so important to know? So the thing with gender is that it's often confused with the word sex. And that in turn is often confused with the word sexuality. So in reality, we'll be talking about not just gender, but also sex and sexuality or sexual orientation. A few months ago, uh, while self-isolating from COVID, I came across this book by Blair Imani called Read This to Get Smarter about race, class, gender, disability and more. A little bit of exploring showed me that Blair Imani is, is quite interesting. She's got a viral series of videos on Instagram Reels and other platforms and the series is called Smarter in Seconds. And she speaks often about topics that we like to discuss here on this podcast. So those of you interested should check her book out or at least find her on social media and follow her. You'll find uh, details in the show notes. And Imani explains the differences between gender, sex and sexuality really well. But before we do that, Venkatesh, let's just get one thing out of the way. You know, when we use the term sex, we should make it clear that we're not referring to the act of sex or copulation. Hmm. Good point. You know, it's really confusing. Sex means sex, right? But it also refers to whether people are born with male sexual organs or female sexual organs, also referred to as male or female genitalia. Then why do we have the same word for two different meanings? And, you know, that's kind of beyond me. Yeah, that's that's English for you. You know, it's, it's also worth pointing out that we can have one word for two entirely different things and it won't necessarily be confusing. For example, a uh, little tongue-in-cheek here, the word Congress could refer to the act of sex, but it also means in India the name of the oldest political party. The actual trouble happens when the same word is used for two slightly different but also related meanings, such as sex for the act of sex and sex for a person's primary sexual organs. At any rate, I thought it might be a good idea to read extracts from this book because Blair Imani has a really good way of explaining things. Um, and so I'm going to start. She says at the most basic level, sex has to do with someone's sex traits like their chromosomes before birth and external genitalia at birth. Gender has to do with someone's innermost concept of self and sexual orientation, also called sexuality, has to do with someone's romantic or sexual attraction or lack thereof to other people. And she says, and I quote, for example, my sex is female, my gender is a woman, and my sexual orientation is bisexual. Um, so that, that's one thing she says, and, and there's just an, another part that I want to highlight as well, uh, because I think it's very important. And she writes, 
sex, gender and sexual orientation are not binary, but unfortunately, they are often and incorrectly believed to be so. Binary means something made of two parts or a division into two groups that are considered completely opposite. If sex, gender and sexual orientation were binary, which they are certainly not, that would mean there are only two sexes, that is male and female, two genders, woman and man, and two sexual orientations, straight and gay. But that is not the case. In fact, there are many sexes, genders and sexualities, all of which are real, genuine and valid. In terms of sex, there is not a binary of male and female, but a kaleidoscope of possible sex-straight combinations. In terms of gender, man and woman are not the only realities. Non-binary and agender people have existed throughout human history. You know, uh, Divya, Arches, I don't know about you folks, but uh, when I was in school and in college and university and uh, in the various cities that I worked in, uh, these were not conversations that were easily had. And in most cases, they were not had at all. It's only in the last few years that we are talking about all of this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, even when I was growing up, I don't think there was there was a very particular or a clear discussion on what sex is or what gender is. Rather, I very clearly remember when, you know, after, cl- after class 12th, I was appearing for uh, engineering examinations. I was taking the undergraduate engineering uh, exams and uh, we, had, we had a lot of application forms to fill because we were applying to so many colleges. And uh, you know how they, uh, they ask for details, okay, okay what's your name? name what's your age they also ask you for your gender so a lot of uh, these forms used to use the words gender and sex interchangeably like you know synonyms of each other so some forms used to say gender some forms used to say sex making it look like these two are these two basically mean the same thing so you know the nuance really gets lost and nobody really talks about it yeah i agree you know uh, <clears throat> uh i I actually, I'd say that, you know, in my teens, I kind of uh, became aware that, you know, all of these terms exist and, you know, there's something beyond the binary, you know, uh, especially when internet came into my life, you know, and I started kind of being exposed to uh, films and literature. But I wouldn't say that I actively went out to understand the differences or understand the nuances uh, and, you know, most of my uh, childhood, way into my teens, I spent in India and a little bit in Singapore and, you know, where like society was, you know, conservative. And these kind of discussions were actually not encouraged. In fact, they were dissuaded, you know, just to like kind of break out from that binary that you spoke about. It wasn't very encouraged. So it happened much later, you know, when I went to college and I went to uh, I went to France and, you know, there, the discussion was a little more advanced. In fact, the year that I reached France, uh, uh, like gay marriage was legalized just before I arrived, you know, so uh, I was just exposed to a completely different kind of discourse. Uh, and uh, years later, when I came back to India, I saw that the discussion had reached here as well. And uh, yes, it, it was still relegated to certain, you know, urban uh, uh, communities. But uh, even those who didn't agree, even they were aware 
that this that this discussion existed and that you know that the conversation was going beyond the binary you know and even people who weren't comfortable with it they had to agree at some point that okay that, that this exists uh, yeah interesting you know it it's uh, yeah it's pretty much the same uh, experience for me as well but uh, you know even as someone who's a professional i had a breakthrough moment a few years ago i think about 7 or 8 years ago when uh, we were holding a, a gender hackathon in uh, in bangalore and uh, you know we invited a number of people to come in and take part and these were other journalists uh, who were, who were based in bangalore and uh, a couple of guys came to me and said uh, you know i don't understand the difference between gender and sex can you explain and i i was not able to explain because i knew there was a difference but i had no words for it um it's 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 the same uh, all over uh, in many parts of india even today even in newsrooms uh, many topics like this are taboo and that's one reason why we have this uh, podcast in any case uh, i just want to read a little bit more from this book because you know these definitions also seem to evolve a little bit Uh, our understanding is always imperfect but it keeps getting better and better so this is one area where i thought you know necessarily gender can be a spectrum but not sex but i was wrong so i'm going to read a part that is that is going to illustrate that uh, blair imani uh, writes and i quote sex is not limited to the sex traits of chromosomes and chromosome pairings are not exclusive to xx and xy In fact there are many chromosome pairings following are the six most commonly occurring chromosome pairings uh, she talks about that and then i'm going just going to read them out so xx is commonly understood as female xy is commonly understood as male but she also talks about other pairings there is x it occurs in about 1 in 2000 to 5000 people and there's xyy occurs in about 1 to 1000 people xxxy that's three x's occurs in about 1 in 18000 to 50000 people and xxy occurs in about 1 in 500 to 1000 people so this is really interesting for me uh, personally it kind of uh, was a breakthrough moment that it's not just it's 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 not as simple as okay primary male characteristics primary female characteristics Yeah, you know, uh, to bring in Blair Imani uh, and her uh, words on gender, she also writes, gender is an aspect of our personal identities. And as explained by gender non-conforming gender scholar Alok Ved Menon, gender is not what people look like to others, it's what we know ourselves to be. Uh, this understanding is foundational to the entire conversation about gender. I found it interesting that Blair Imani said the following also and I quote When I was born my sex was assigned as female and my gender was simultaneously assigned as girl based on the appearance of my ex- external genitalia at birth My gender identity is woman since my assigned gender and my gender identity are socially defined as the same I am cisgender cis means on the other side of transgender is an adjective that describes a person who does not identify as the gender they were assigned at birth trans means on or to the other side of 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real uh, kitchery of words uh, for people who are uh, coming to it afresh for the very first time. So this is a topic that I guess we'll come again and again to. Uh, there are so many terms and it gets quite confusing. But I thought it might, it might also be interesting to talk about why we need to talk about these terms, why it's interesting. And for me, you know, there are a few reasons that I can think of, but... One of the primary ones is we assume that, um, I mean, I'm speaking as a cisgendered, uh, heteronormative person, a male. Uh, and so there's this tendency to assume that the, the, the world is divided into people like me and uh, the, the exact opposite of me on the, on, on the female side. But the fact of the matter is when we start talking about these definitions, we also make sure that people who are invisibilized, that people who are not visible, uh, they're able to come out and participate in society as well. It's the same with, we're talking about sex and gender, but essentially it's the same principle at work where a majority kind of in, in, in invisibilizes uh, the minority. So you can... Uh, you can you can make the same argument towards caste, uh, disability, religion, region, language, and so on. I just want to just read one last line, and then we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, uh, Imani says, while many of us may be most familiar with the gender identities of man, woman, and even non-binary, uh, there are myriad names for countless other gender identities, including gender fluid, gender queer by gender, demigender, and more. Even within those broad identities, there is no single way to express any given gender identity. And when discussing gender identity, it is also important to consider the implications of the language we use. So I thought that's an interesting point at which to end because this podcast is all about the language we use, right? And, and the language we use creating certain attitudes and those attitudes creating certain behaviors. So there's a clear link between learning the best words possible for discussing any issue in contemporary India or, con or the contemporary world. Uh, I think we can leave it at that on gender and move on uh, to the next word. Phew. Well, we started off on a heavy note. Uh, you know, that's what I meant by gender being a misunderstood topic. It requires a lot of discussion. All right. Up next, we have the word grassroots. It's a word often heard in politics, but what does it mean really? Essentially, a grassroots movement is one where decisions are made at a local level. It is basically a type of bottom-up style of governance or politics uh, to harness support from really the lowermost level. Let's give a few examples of grassroots movements so it's a bit clearer to our listeners. Yeah, I can think of one, uh, which is basically door to door campaigning. So you go to these different households, knock on their doors and distribute your campaign pamphlets and even have a little discussion with them, like the people whom you are reaching out to. So you get, a, you get to discuss the issues ailing them and you let them know at a personal level that they've got your support if they support your cause. In that way, you're harnessing support from a local level, you know, in a, in a bottom-up bottom style. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting example. Here are a few more. Fundraising is a very common grassroots kind of movement. As a political or non-political movement, if you rely on individual supporters to fund you uh, instead of big money holders, then you're answerable to these individual or individuals. Uh, basically, you're answerable to the Aam Admi or the Aam Aurat 
or the arm non-binary. Um, this is giving power to those who are at the bottom. That, that's great what you two put forth. You know, um, even going to the town square, gathering people there and engaging them in some sort of political, political or non-political discussion is also kind of a grassroots movement. You can actually discuss pertinent issues, bring in diverse opinions because you're just get gathering random people and you can make robust political decisions based on ground reality right there. And uh, an another type of grassroots movement is uh, voter registration. Uh, you know, American polit politician and voter rights activist uh, Stacey Abrams founded this organization called Fair Fight Action, which addresses the issue of voter suppression in the U.S., uh, basically systemic issues that make it much harder for people of color to register as voters and go vote. And she is credited with uh, boosting voter turnout in her home state of Georgia, where George, Joe, uh, Joe Biden narrowly won against Trump in 2020. And it is, uh, it is a state that has voted Republican nine out of 11 times since 1976. So, uh, so Abrams' campaign would be considered a grassroots campaign because it works from the individual level. Interesting, interesting. What about grassroots movements in India? Uh, do we have anything like that worth bringing up? Yeah, I was actually reading up about it. And we have had some majorly successful grassroots movement in India, like Satyagraha, for example, is one that, you know, that had existed before the independence. And, you know, it was a big part of our independence struggle. And uh, historically, uh, grassroots movements in post-independence era, era was uh, mainly championed by the communist parties, at least politically. And among non-political movements, you had the Chipko movement, if you remember the, the forest conservation movement. But in recent times, uh, a successful champion of grassroots movement for, would, I would say, would be the Aam Admi Party led by Arvind Kejriwal. I mean, uh, there was even a documentary made on it that highlighted how he had hit the streets time and again, gotten people's support and even you know got people to fundraise uh, for his candidacy for MLA right on the streets uh, when he stood against uh, you know Congress uh, uh, the Congress Chief Minister Sheila Dixit. And uh, his team also did extensive door-to-door -door campaigning and was quickly able to figure out the major problems ailing people of Delhi at that time, which was, you know, high costs of basic necessities, electricity, water, and all that. And that became his main campaigning point and also the, the some of the highlights of his government's work. But grassroots movement cannot die out after you win the election. You cannot, after, after you get the power, you cannot just leave the people be. And it has to be it has to be a continuous process because the issues are evolving. And once you take care of some of the basic problems, you need to look again because there might be some new issues coming up. Um, and another thing I'd like to highlight is that you know Aap's successful grassroots campaigning was not left unnoticed by other parties and you know political consult consultancy groups as well, who now devise their own style of grassroots uh, uh, campaigning. And, you know, so uh, in some of the last few elections, uh, you would see uh, you would see people uh, deploying huge number of people, you know, whether it's TMC, BJP, Congress, uh, you know, on local level, you know, trying to, you know, go gather people, do door to door and all of these things. So people notice that, OK, like uh, for a long time, you know, they haven't been really hitting the streets and, you know, meeting people. And uh, maybe there's something in there uh, that shouldn't be, you know, like forgotten. 
Right. So, you know, this got me thinking that, uh, so you have a lot of individual users on social media and here you can really gather huge numbers of people, right? Say, let's say you're doing a Twitter spaces session. People can gather from all over the world. There's no limit there. And this kind, this, you know, this kind of overcomes the limitations of gathering people physically at a limited space. So can social media be a good place to start um, a grassroots campaign? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think this is there's a yes and a no answer to that question. Um, yeah. We know that the internet has been used, of course, to mobilize the mass, the masses before. For example, at the start of the Arab Spring, an Egyptian activist Asma Mahfouz posted a video urging her fellow citizens to meet her at Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo. She made an emotional appeal in the video by speaking of protesters who had self-immolated to protest against three decades of poverty. She released a few more videos like this in the beginning of 2011. They got really viral across platforms. And before you knew it, Tahrir Square saw one of the largest gatherings in history, right? We've, we've all seen that with hundreds of thousands of people pouring into the streets. And we've also seen Facebook being used extensively by Black Lives Matter protesters in the United States, by climate protesters during uh, the Paris COP21. And we've also seen a lot of grassroots efforts on social media. But there's a catch. Bad actors have understood its potential as well. And they've embedded themselves into the system so well that now it is extremely difficult to tell which movement is genuine and organic and which ones are agenda driven. That's a great point, Venkatesh. Social media, at the end of the day, is a source of information, right? Uh, and back in the days, you know, when radio and television were taken over by powerful entities, governments, corporates, etc., those who wanted to gain grassroots support against them would rely on physical campaigning, using flyers and crowd gathering methods on streets. And today, people overtly rely on internet, on social media, and you know, on messaging apps. And uh, unlike radio and television, you can get your word out pretty easily, right? So it's it's hard to realize that the game here could be rigged against you, but it, it is. And there is this method called astroturfing. You know, astroturfing is a form of fake grassroots campaign where you get people to impersonate genuine people on the internet and uh, provide views that would seem like they're from real people, but they're actually agenda driven. It sounds like uh, uh, this astroturfing is what a lot of controversial organizations and corporations do, uh, including, of course, uh, our homegrown IT cell. Am I right or am I wrong? That, that's exactly so. You know, like IT cell is basically what we call astroturfing in India. And uh, IT, cell is, the IT cells exist, you know, among corporates and political entities. And uh, even, you know, uh, some big personalities have their own IT cells, you know. And, uh, it, it, okay, I, I'll just give an example. Imagine there is this person X. Now X is in dire need of a job and a political organization uh, comes to X and tells him to create 15 different profiles on the internet, each with different photos of his and using different names. Now he's given a list of tasks to do, support certain politicians. Uh, of the political party that has approached him and troll and harass certain others, you know, of opposing parties. Now this X goes online in all 15 accounts at different times and starts posting words of support for a politician. And very organically, you know, he posts things out of his own, you know, he, he uses his own words. He, he's not given like, okay, like a specific tweet bank all the time. He said, okay, just support this person, right? 
so and then he also goes and harasses others who are on the opposite end now to a genuine user looking at a photo posted by this politician and going through the comment section he or she will see oh wow this person has so many fans and supporters but in reality the number is going to be heavily inflated because many of these so called fans and supporters are actually run by a much smaller number of these paid folks and this is called astroturfing it makes it seem like some entity has immense followers you know individuals pouring out in their support but in reality the number is much much lower and it is a very very effective way of influencing public opinion i see this seems very problematic indeed i mean since we rely so much on the internet you know like for so many things and social media used to be a good way to gauge public opinion but actually that would be incorrect uh, also astroturfing is not just a political thing right i mean cult, uh, corporate entities also deploy it cells to spread their brand name even uh, rape convicted godmen like gurmeet ram rahim and asaram bapu seem to have humongous followership supporters who are trying to spread their agenda but now i'm thinking maybe this is all hogwash and there aren't that many followers really i mean just inflated numbers using uh, astroturfing yeah great example there you know it used to baffle me at some point you know how good these people were at hijacking trends and making their campaigns to support their you know uh, leaders you know convicted leaders and yeah totally they may have a big fan base but it's not as big as it appears on the internet you know just scroll astroturfing and you know the thing is in in the internet you know say in the pre internet era you couldn't have one person you know uh, may create like 10 different personas and hit the street you know and uh, you can't have these people you know also pretend to be someone they're not eventually they'll get caught especially if they're trying to penetrate groups where people know each other uh, but on the internet it is a given that you don't know everyone right and you like say you form part of this facebook event you don't know everyone else who's you know like part of that event who, who are you know who said yes to the invitation and are, are going to come and you know eventually uh, like you have no idea how many people are actually you know into that event or you know how many people are actually supporting uh, a politician or an entity based on you know the number of uh, likes and comments and that is really difficult you know like because uh, compared to the times before you could actually say how many supporters are there based on number of people you see because they are real people but now you're dealing with people who are not real and the number is hugely inflated so so that's astroturf and it's a grassroots movement it's a fake grassroots movement because it tries to mimic this bottom up style it tries to mimic uh, local level support you know in the form of individual voices on the internet right uh, so i think now we left with two words gatekeeping and gaslighting let's just take gate gatekeeping first um you know generally speaking gatekeeping means to control or limit the access to something and in the case of media gatekeeping is the process of selecting and filtering the information that we give to our readers now so so the uh, media decides which news should be prioritized uh, what should be given more air time what shouldn't be covered at all and so on 
Now you must be wondering that if individuals are doing this filtering process, then there ought to be some biases at play, right? I mean, just because a media outlet decides that so and so murder in Delhi needs more airtime than, let's say, an election rally happening somewhere else, how do we know they've got it right? Who decides, right? I mean, isn't that also way too much power? I mean, there's a reason why it's it's said that media helps shape the public opinion. What do what do both of you think? Wow, There's so much to unpack in in what you said, uh, Divya. I think yeah, traditionally the media was the biggest gatekeeper, so to speak. But I think today in a, in a in a world where uh, one can just taking on an example from the previous word uh, grassroots, one can create a any kind of campaign by buying uh, tens of thousands of followers. Um, I guess in a way it's good that uh, this kind of visible gatekeeping that the media used to do is is less easy to do today because of complete access to information everybody has. Uh, rather, I would say that uh, there is another kind of gatekeeping that is you know, even more problematic. Gatekeeping that is invisible, right? When you don't know there's any gatekeeping involved, but uh, gatekeeping is involved. So for example... Uh, in in the the world of scholars, academics judging each other on which university a person has got a PhD uh, degree from, and uh, uh, creating in like an invisible caste system within organizations or universities, or writers uh, who judge each other on the perceived value of the of of, of the books they've written, and uh, involving themselves in invisible gatekeeping. You know, exclusive access to certain types of events because literary fests are all the rage and have been for the last ten years or so. Every state seems to have one now, um, or you know, it, it could be practically in every in any profession. This kind of gatekeeping can be quite. Uh, damaging uh, and uh, it's like being part of the so-called you know boys club sometimes uh, that is also a kind of gatekeeping so invisible gatekeeping I think is a real issue and and to be honest let's not make let's not say that uh, this is this is something we can do anything about because I guess it's a human tendency and until we all learn to be super aware of our own biases and the way we do things and we all buy into the idea that that diversity and representation is very, very important, this is going to continue to happen. But visible gatekeeping, I think the biggest gatekeepers today are uh, technology companies. Uh, They decide what is visible and what is not visible. Uh, The algorithm is all powerful and there are major problems with that kind of uh, visible gatekeeping as well. I mean, to be honest, an algorithm is not really visible, so you can make an argument that it's invisible, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that it's, everyone knows that um, technology companies are kind of controlling the narrative today, right? Who gets to say what? And especially if you're an entity like a political entity or a big corporation that has a massive budget and that you can actually using technology or using social media, you can do the gatekeeping. So I guess gatekeeping now is like majorly in the hands of politicians and uh, tech companies so yeah it's it's yeah it, it's a power that can be shared right but technology companies can choose to share with you know whoever uh whoever wants to do business with them another example you know i thought of was uh, of major publishing houses of scientific journals they also engage in gatekeeping by deciding what kind of uh journal article 
gets to be in you know those reputed papers that people will eventually cite for you know other articles in the future other study studies in the future and that also creates major biases you know that the western bias is kind of a result of this where journal articles would choose uh studies done by you know western universities by western uh, scientists and academics and uh, eventually you know non westerners would be left out of this and that would create this you know loop of bias um and you know like i guess you're right divya in in a way this is just way too much power and yeah. uh, and you know that i guess there is this whole debate going on on how to you know kind of check this power people are now getting more and more people are getting involved you have the government getting involved uh, on creating like uh, transparency rules for these tech companies especially because now as venkatesh said they're the biggest gatekeepers uh, so you know like give us more information about how the algorithm functions and you know uh, how they uh, how uh, how they you know uh, Uh, work function with their advertisements how you know like for example in facebook uh, in 2019 they were eventually forced to uh, publish details of advertisers especially uh, for ads that are uh, you know uh, of public concern uh, and uh, that was a way to kind of force them into letting us know who are pushing out these ads and also just letting us know which posts are ads and you know which posts are sponsored posts and which are organically boosted so so there there are there is a lot of power involved here and but there are methods of checking this power and i think there is a whole level of discussion going on here yeah since you're talking about checking uh, there are these other outlets that you know call themselves as media watchdogs so they're on the other side of the spectrum keeping a check if media outlets are covering what they should be covering but then again the question comes down to who decides what should be covered right and what is the credibility of these media watchdogs like how it's it's you know it's come it comes down the same thing how you know some people question that oh just because you you're calling yourself as a fact checker why should we believe you i mean i i mean just because you are a fact checker i mean you think you are a fact checker so you're credible you know such things so there's always that doubt and there's always that questioning that goes on yeah i mean uh, it's 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 an interesting point you bring up divya it's like uh, the word propaganda right now propaganda can be used for good purposes and bad purposes uh, you a family planning poster uh, is 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 government propaganda but it's for good purposes whereas on the other hand you have propaganda pitting one community against the other that is bad propaganda or if you have any kind of propaganda like uh, russia is very famous for it um uh, you know creating a kind of uh, narrative uh, well that that is bad propaganda the western countries uh, similarly have a way of uh, being condescending uh, like the united states the uk and uh, many of those countries that can also be seen as bad propaganda similarly i think watchdogs or the idea of gatekeeping um it can be both used for good ends and bad ends and in in cases where it's used for good ends i think we should keep it i don't think fact checking is doing any gatekeeping at all at this point in time yeah uh, but but i would say that fact checking organizations can be defined as a sort of gatekeeping uh, as a sort of gatekeeper um similarly uh, media similarly ngos similarly ngos that the track um <clears throat> you know um uh, abuses that is not necessarily gatekeeping i would say it's 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 more 
to do with um, being a watch, being a watchdog. Yeah. Uh, so there are shades where they kind of shade into each other, but the more I think about it, and I'm really thinking aloud at this point in time, the more I feel like that kind of thing is more like a watchdog um, uh, thing, and gatekeeping is something else entirely. And I would say when we use the word gatekeeping, we tend to use it in a negative sense. Uh, I don't know, Archis, if this makes sense. What I was saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, it it, it sort of does. Uh, but you know, I was th- I was thinking this is not really a watchdog versus gatekeeping uh, kind of thing. You know, uh, in, instead we should see it as a combined effort. Ideally, now of course this is uh, speaking of an ideal situation. Uh, this should be a combined effort, and uh, each of these entities should be able to acknowledge the presence of others. You know, and the work that they do, and gatekeepers should realize that okay, that that their gatekeeping methods could go wrong. And that the watchdogs should be able to point those out, and vice versa. And uh, I think I think this is this is a responsibility of like a combined responsibility in a way, just to check the power. Because you know, I, Divya, you kept asking, you know, who decides what should be covered? I guess whoever is deciding should be transparent about you know how they're covering it, and you True. know what is the basis of them selecting you know one information, one piece of information over other, and same for the watchdogs, you know, and uh, and it's not like something that okay, like oh, you were you, you pointed out my mistakes, so I'm going to shun you out. It shouldn't be like that. There should be more uh, fruitful discussions uh, between you know uh, these of on the two sides, both sides of the fence. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I think I can. I think we can leave the keep keep that as the last word. And if anyone has any thoughts about uh, gatekeeping and. Uh, where it's gatekeeping, where it's bad, what's how it shades into Hello? being a watchdog and Hello? so on. Uh, please write into us as always. We have one more word to discuss. That is G for gaslighting, and uh, I find this to be a. It took me a long time because the word gaslight is not at all evocative. You know, uh, uh, gaslighting has nothing to do with. Uh, what the first first thing that pops into my head when someone says gaslighting is literally a lighter gas lighter you know that we use to uh, keep our uh, switch our stoves on but it has nothing to do with that and uh, according to the encyclopedia britannica gaslighting is a technique of deception and manipulation usually practiced by a single person or a gas lighter on a single victim over an extended period Uh, So let me continue that uh, definition. Its effect is to gradually undermine the victim's confidence in his own ability to distinguish truth from falsehood, right from wrong, or reality from appearance, thereby rendering him pathologically dependent on the gaslighter in his thinking or in his feelings. So once you start looking for it, gaslighting is is everywhere. If, especially you can see that see see this in personal relationships, right? Um, like for example, if a wife tells her husband that he is shirking childcare responsibilities, and he responds by refusing to acknowledge that this is even happening, he is gaslighting her. And I, I'm sure this kind of thing happens a lot in families. Or a second example, if a person who is repeatedly hurt by their partner's behavior, uh, you know, that this person confronts him with it and says, uh, and he says, hey, uh, I'm not doing this, you're imagining things, then he is gaslighting the other person. And a third example, when 
someone says a clear lie and we see this in politics uh, someone says a clear lie and that person responds by saying hey i did not lie you're saying i'm lying but i actually did not lie that's gaslighting uh, we've seen politicians do this time and again uh, so that's the point a politics is filled with gaslighters right but before we get into it uh, here's how the word came to be i mean it is based on gaslight a play by patrick hamilton this mystery thriller was published in 1938 when homes were lit by gas lights not electric lights the play's main characters are a husband and wife jack and bella and the large house that they live in jack wants some jewels left behind in the house by the previous owner bella is unsuspecting jack wants to hide his motives for living in the house from her and he tries to convince bella that she's going mad when she hears his footsteps as he rummages around in another part of the house he tells her that she's hearing things when he lights all the gas lights in the house they grow dim but when bella points this out he tells her she's imagining things slowly he makes her doubt herself and eventually convince her that she's insane this story has a happy ending though and bella learns the truth about jack from a detective and turns the tables on him and it's very neat how she turns the table on him you should see the wikipedia entry on gaslighting for more on this anyway i wanted to ask when do politicians gaslight people yeah i you know i just forgot to say this uh, archis i'm she she i think in the she she turns the tables by uh, gaslighting him in turn uh, so when politicians gaslight us uh, you know real life doesn't have happy endings like in that uh, play or the film it was made into a film politicians they do this in many ways uh, and you know i asked a few months ago i think it was a couple of years ago i asked for examples of political gaslighting on facebook uh, on a post and a friend sent me some examples uh, and this is from the united states and uh, this is contemporary to 2 years ago so uh, these are examples of uh, gaslighting politically number 1 covid 19 is not a problem number 2 the economy is doing very well number 3 major cities are suffering violent daily riots this is when the uh post george floyd um uh, murder protests began uh, fourth example donald trump is widely popular uh, fifth example there is widespread voter fraud uh, sixth example there is a huge surge in crime so these are all mass uh, you know politi- political uh, people and politicians rather and political parties uh, they involve themselves in a lot of gaslighting and it happens all over the world uh, so each time you say that oh look this politician is lying he and his supporters will say you're crazy you're biased you're fake you know who are you going to believe uh, me or you you know that kind of thing so in india too gaslighting is everywhere uh, on whatsapp uh, for example uh, a journalist said that uh, prime minister's uh, modi's speech in delhi a couple of years ago uh, where he claimed that his government has never spoken 
about a nationwide NRC, despite his government having spoken about it at least nine times in parliament. So that's one example. Um, come to come to think of it, the entire NRC CAA fight was full of political gaslighting, both by Modi but also others in the central government, including uh, Amit Shah. Yet another example is Union Minister Anurag Thakur's uh, denial of his own words uh, in January. You know, during the anti-CAA protests in New Delhi, he urged people to shoot protesters. Uh, this was captured on videos, on video. Yet later on, he denied that he said those words at all a month later. Uh, he said, you're lying at a press conference, for example. Um, so these are some examples. But sometimes, you know, uh, Divya Narchis, I, I, I've, I've realized that when it comes to politics, gaslighting is supposed to be a very uh, subconscious act, right? But many of our politicians, they don't need to, they're not necessarily gaslighting. They're openly in, inciting uh, action or violence by many people. Um and so that's one thing I wanted to say about uh, gaslighting. Um, uh, there are lots of other things to talk about gaslighting, but we'll point you to a to a piece on media buddhi uh, in the show notes uh, where we'll talk about questions such as can gas gaslighting be an unconscious act? As in, can a gaslighter unconsciously gaslight another person? The answer is yes. Uh, do people fall for gaslighting? The answer is yes. Can silence be construed as gas gaslighting? Uh, well. Just read the article if you're interested and maybe you'll find other ways to think about it. Um, and I think that's that when it comes to the words that we are discussing uh, this week. We've run through four words. Uh, Arches, Divya, do you have anything to say, anything to point out, anything you learned? Um, I'd like to point out that earlier uh, we might have, while talking about cisgender, we might have said that cis uh, means on the other side of uh, we've made a little error there cis means on the same side of by whereas trans means on the other side of okay so this is in reference that that's my mistake uh, reference to uh, the, the the gender discussion uh, and i'm glad you pointed this out um, and that's very important for us to to be accountable for our mistakes and um, but but also the idea of a podcast is such that when I make a mistake, you're free to point it out or Divya is free to point it out. And we, we set the record straight in, in that way. So that's that. Uh, we've, we've done what letters up to G. The ne next letter would be H and that would be the next episode. We'll leave it at that. Please write in to us if you have any comments, uh, bouquets or brickbats. Thanks for listening.